This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to the 28th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And tonight, we have the privilege of having Anthony Doerr, whose book... Yeah. Wow. 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 I didn't say welcome to the Writers' Symposium. Wow. Is there like free Chick-fil-A or something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, loud boy. Enough? Oh, boy. With us tonight is Anthony Doerr, whose books include the Pulitzer Prize winning All the Light We Cannot See, which spent more than 200 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. He also wrote the more recent Cloud Cuckoo Land, the novel About Grace, the nonfiction book Four Seasons in Rome, two short story collections, The Shell Collector and Memory Wall. In addition to his Pulitzer, he has won an Andrew Carnegie Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, National Book Award finalist, National Magazine Award. Yeah, you want me to just keep going? Yeah, <laughs> I will. Numerous international awards, O. Henry Prize for short stories, four times, five times. He's in the Best American Short Stories, Best American Essays, four Pushcart Prizes. He's in 40 languages. And now, the pinnacle of his career, he's at the Writers' Symposium by the Sea. Welcome, Anthony Doerr, to the Writers' Symposium. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me, Dean. Thank you guys so much for coming out. What an amazing campus to see the storm come in off the water was like the best thing that's happened to me all week. It's so neat to see there's like real ice plant. There's like stuff growing. I know there's an erosion problem, but it felt to me as a visitor like we have lots of good, healthy green things holding the soil together down there. So I was excited. <laughs> do, do you mind if I start asking questions or did you want to just keep going with this whole landscape thing? All right. We can do questions. No, this is great. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you see it because not everybody sees how beautiful it is. They just kind of come here. It is stunning. Yeah. Good. Let's, let's talk about your first book. It was a nine pager called Mollusks when you were a little kid. Did, did you have a focus group help you with that title? <laughs> That's amazing. Never got this question before. It's, it, was a, uh, it was a school project. I was super excited because mom had a blank book. Mom sewed a bunch of stuff and she made a purple cloth cover for it and even put like some cotton underneath it so it's puffy. As a kid, you're like, puffy books, pretty cool. Yeah, those are awesome. And she was like, yes, you can have it, but make sure you like do a draft or two before you start filling the pages with your book about mollusks, which of course, of course, very popular. <laughs> but my most clear memory of my first lesson in failing at graphic design was I sit down very carefully to write the M for mollusks and I put it right in the center of the puffy purple. And then I'm yeah. like, here comes the O, 
and the two L's, which sometimes you forget about. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, so yeah. then I'm turning the book. Yeah. Like the USCS is all down. And then I think I still only, like my huge effort filled about two and a half pages of like the 40 page blank book. So it probably left readers a little unsatisfied. I think they were unsatisfied just looking at the cover, probably. Not, not with That's the... wrong. Moloch's are so interesting. Well, Dude, yeah. Let's they kind get of, into no, it. No, they're kind of meandering down the page. That's actually oh, yeah, that's, probably that's, how they do it. Yeah, it's like I, was, I didn't realize this at the time, but it was mimicking the motion of a clam's foot. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's called multi-layered. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what. I was super. We only got to go on one vacation a year. My mom was a school teacher. I lived in Ohio and I was obsessed with the ocean. I don't know why, but we would take, she had two weeks off. So she would pile me and my brothers in this old suburban and drive us to Florida to a place called Sanibel Island. Does anybody know this place? It was like a paradise, paradise. And then she let us, mom was a science teacher. She let us keep all kinds of creatures, probably illegal. And we would bring them back in milk jugs, like crabs and octopi and stuff that would die, and bring them all the way back. So you leave, and it's like snowing, and she's like in a white-knuckle panic all the way home. And then we try to keep them alive in like aquariums in the kitchen. And there was something so like powerful and profound about that, like wrenching a creature out of its habitat and putting it, you're like putting it next to the wood stove while snow is falling down. And you're like, hmm, that's a lionfish that my brother got stung by. I don't know, it was a very powerful stuff in my childhood about me and shells. Yeah, no, I think, and, and actually I think it comes through in your writing, that kind of fascination and wonder about that kind of, those lives yeah, the uh, umwelt of shell of snails and mollusks is so different than ours. And I think the way they see and experience the world is just a reminder that ours is just one way of experiencing the world. Every time you get study any creature, they're experiencing the world in different ways. Bees can see patterns in the ultraviolet and flowers that we can't see. Snakes can kind of see heat in ways we can't see. And you know, the metaphor that we probably got together in biology of the animal kingdom always kind of implies there's a hierarchy and humans right. were at the top. Evolution's all finished with us. And then you get older and you're like, wait, it doesn't seem like evolution finished my back. Uh, and so uh, learning, I think, from mom to appreciate that like every, the life of every creature is just as valuable and just as interesting and just as worthy of curiosity as our own, and that 99.9% of species have gone extinct and humans, why in the world do we think we're going to be some exception? Uh, those things kind of teach you a kind of humility, a really wonderful humility. Experiencing wonder in your life every day teaches you this beautiful humility and transcendence, and that doesn't have to be something magic. I think maybe as the pandemic taught so many of us, you don't have to go to Positano to experience wonder necessarily. You can just stand out there and check out the ice plant between visiting Dean's classes. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But you have to put your phone away sometimes to do that. And I'm not that great at it, but if you throw your phone away, sometimes you're like, oh, the world's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so after mollusks, then you wrote something for a high school short story contest with another one-word title, Avalanche. Oh, Avalanche. Yeah, okay, right. That was, that was your second book. <laughs> it was a story, yeah. But, oh, a story, yeah, right, right. But before you submitted that story, you did what all of the characters in your novels do. 
you went to the library. Hmm, that's right, Dean. Good what did you What did you find there in the library before you turned in a short story called Avalanche? Mm, I looked for a book, but I was looking for like how to write books. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't grow up like going to writer symposia. Is that plural? Yeah, symposia. Yeah, symposia. that's correct. Um, and uh, yeah, it just wasn't a family where we're like Norman Mailers coming over for dinner or something. I just thought writers lived in Paris or Buenos Aires or were dead. <laughs> Those were the options. Yeah, right. And I thought, you know, you'd have as much chance of becoming a writer as you would of becoming a blue whale or something. It just wasn't like an option, you know. So you go to the library, how, how to, to write... How to become a writer, yeah. yeah. how to write a I'd book. I'd probably ask the librarian because I was good at using the catalog. And uh, yeah, I found, um, I think it was a book by Rust Hills. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like how to write short stories. And he had a few rules, but my instinct at that, this is, I was an adolescent, I'm in high school. My instinct was to try to invert every rule that was given me. And it was like short stories must only have one protagonist. They must stay in a single point of view. Uh, it must be clear rising action, falling action. Can't quite remember his rules. He goes on to complicate and make those rules more sophisticated and really a really smart book that he wrote. But at that age, you're just like, read the first four pages and think, I'm going to resist all these rules. Um, so I tried to make a multi... I was, I was worried because Avalanche had a dog character, back to creatures again. And I was in the point of view of a dog, I think, at that age. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not supposed to do that. So then I wrote a very serious short story that did not win the short story competition in high school. Here's, here's what I love about what you said about this. I wanted to make big, sprawling jungles, but the author of that book said I ought to be growing little bonsai trees. <laughs> yeah, that's what I felt. I probably misinterpreted them, but yeah. Yeah, but... I think you've got the last laugh because all of your books are big, sprawling jungles. Thanks. Yeah. They are. Well, you oscillate between making the little leaves that make up the jungle. I mean, most of your time, you're like creating these little jeweler's works. And then it's only when you take time to step away that you're like, oh, right, there's a whole story I need to tell here. I just spent four hours retooling what this girl's bedroom looks like. And you don't even realize maybe three months later, you cut that scene where you describe her bedroom. So you're always oscillating between like you, using your loop to look at the microscopic layer of things, like how do my sentences look and work and feel and breathe and sound, and then you step away and you're, you take a walk or do the dishes and you're like, what is the larger narrative here? What is the whole shape of this thing I'm making? Um, so yeah, I want to make the jungle, but you have to make each individual piece inside the jungle. It's like building a house, but you have to build everything in the house. You don't get to call the plumber who like brings in the prefix toilet. No, prefix, that's a mixed metaphor, though. Prefix yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm all for making your own toilet. But you started out writing short stories. You had a column, a science column in the Boston Globe. Um, and... Science has always had this theme, even in what you've talked about so far today. There's radio waves and gemstones and mollusks and snow crystals. Um, And I'm guessing because your mom was a science teacher, that had something to do with, you know, and and the trips to Florida, something to do with your fascination with science, right? 
I think so. I never um, really was taught to think in those terms of like, you should now choose when you're 18 years old whether you want to go to the art building for the rest of your life or the science building. Make a choice, Jimmy. The science building will make more money. Uh, I never thought, I had to think that way. I went to a Montessori school through seventh grade. Maybe that was part of it. Mom was definitely part of it. I think um, I think of science and even theology and arts as all ways of just investigating this wild, mad, amazing life, this chance we get to be here on this planet for if we're lucky eight decades and then it's gone and why not just learn as much as you can and who cares what you call that learning? Uh, and so, yeah, science, I... Like when they asked me to write this, it was a column on science books for the Boston Globe, science books written for the layperson. And I was like, well, you understand I'm totally unqualified to write this, but that's the point. It's like those books were meant for the layperson. So it's like, mm -hmm. do I understand what Brian Greene is saying about physics? I love that job. That's back when people like read physical newspapers. And it was great uh, yeah, <laughs> for the San Diego paper that's helping us to support tonight. Uh, I feel like that was an amazing, like, grad school after grad school, those 10 years, because every four weeks I'd have to read three or four books, and sometimes string theory, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, new challenges to some element of the theory of evolution or something that would really kept, keep me abreast. And so I, I do miss that, even though the deadlines, as you know, as well as anybody, sometimes can wear you down. Well, you've made some really interesting parallels, in my view, between science uh, and storytelling uh, in the past. What, what, do you, what do those two things have in common? Uh, well, storytelling is everything, and the best uh, science explainers are storytellers because they lift things down from the world to use, like your language in your book, you know, they lift things uh, out of the abstract and you find this, this mule, this thing uh, rooted in a person to carry story forward. You know, the best way to understand whatever new cancer research, like this amazing book by Sid Mukherjee about cells that's just out. He wrote a book um, called The Emperor of Ma uh, Maladies. Emperor's cancer. Malady, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's always the best parts of his books are when you're following one patient's journey or one scientist's journey, Mendel's journey into genes. And you picture one monk out there in the dirt with the peas and that's how you start to understand how discoveries are made and uh, so once again it's that kind of oscillation between micro and macro all the time i think that the best uh, science explainers are going to tell you a story one of the things you've said about scientists and artists is that they do the same thing they eat breakfast they go to work they break the ice that is formed overnight and they start confronting problems <laughs> That's good. I wrote that. That's you wrote good. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You wrote that. But is that what storytelling is to you is an attempt to solve problems? Uh, much of the day. Of course, there's moments when you're like reaching your fingers up on the stars, but almost all the time you're just down on your hands and knees in the gravel or rearranging things. You're, you're using these really inexact tools, which are words. You know, even when I say the word tree, that means a slightly different thing to every person in the room. And that's why reading and writing is a collaboration. When you read a novel, you're collaborating with the writer to make something totally unique that's never been existing in the world before. You're using those inexact things to try to fumble over like these universal truths. You know, Flaubert said, we long to make music to melt the stars, but we're really just 
you know, uh, tapping crude rhythms on pots and pans for bears to dance to. That's what you feel like when you're writing because you have this initial vision in the shower of like what the scene's going to be. But then when you sit down to make it, you're just failing all the time. It's just this inarticulate porridge. You You can't quite get there. And it's only through revision after revision that you can start to try to approximate. But there's always going to be gaps of misunderstanding and confusion in the gaps between words and in the words themselves. So I think there is something very much like science. Science, too, is a series of failures as you fumble towards some kind of conclusion. You know, you make a hypothesis, you test it, it fails, you try to reformulate your hypothesis. And I think that's a lot of what novel writing is for me. It's a big, big mesh of art and engineering and faith and doubt. So, so many of your, of your themes deal with these enormous issues. It could be building of a dam that floods a community. It could be infertility. It could be apartheid, Alzheimer's, environmental disaster, war. Do you, do you start with the big issue that you want to dig into, or do you, uh, you know, do you say, "I want to tell the story, uh, tell the world a story about apartheid," or do you just create a character and follow her around for a while and see what trouble she gets into? Uh, I think you oscillate between the two, but I really want to maybe disabuse young writers in here, young of whatever age, beginning writers, that like you should start. It would get really itchy when you say, like, do you start with big ideas? Because often then you stay up in the big idea world. You have students come to you and they're like, well, I just want to write about love, so that's why I included no details in the story. I just wanted it to just be about love. And that's why I didn't want to describe the town they live in, because I wanted it to be any town. You're like, well, if you actually describe the town, the reader would have something to see in the town and might enjoy reading it, you know? So it's like the the great irony of fiction writing is that the, the path to the universal is through the individual. The tunnel to the universe is through the little pieces of glitter that are shattered in the pavement down below Dean's office in the Point Loma faculty parking lot, right? That's how you tunnel towards these universal things Flaubert is fumbling after. Uh, And so you can't lose yourself too often in the big ideas, but you also can't um, you can't get you can't get so focused in the minutia of your characters' lives that you forget that you're trying to tell something that other people can relate to, and so moving back and forth. I can be specific if that helps. All the light we cannot see. The idea comes to me. 2004. I finished a book and I'm going to New York City. I was at Princeton for a year. I'm on the train to go to New York City to see my publisher's version, like the art for a, a cover for About Grace, my second book. And the guy, maybe you've heard this story, the guy in the seat in front of me, you know, the train's going 50 miles an hour and he's talking on his 2004 cell phone about the movie The Matrix. Super important conversation. <laughs> And as we go into the city, you start going underground, steel and concrete are flying above the train, and his call drops, and the guy got, in my opinion, unreasonably angry about the call dropping. And you know, it occurred to me what he's doing, what we're all doing every time we're like, let's see if somebody liked my photo of my pie, is a total miracle. You know, it's an utter, absolute stunning miracle. We're using, sending little packets of light 
from a radio that's way smaller than a deck of cards, and we're sending them at the speed of light to radio towers positioned around San Diego, and they respond to other towers all the way to your buddy in Madrid, who's like, cool pie, Brenda, bloop. And then that's coming back to you at the speed of light. And you're like, why isn't this working? It's astonishing. It's like the gods can't do that stuff. And I, so I, I don't usually get titles early, but I carry a little notebook. I can show you it. And um, that day I wrote all the light we cannot see. I just, I was like, I want to somehow explore how we use invisible light to send messages. And I thought, I've got, I, all I have is this germ of a girl using, a girl who was trapped using a radio to send a story to a boy who was also trapped and he needed uh, this story to somehow survive. So I knew I wanted to kind of remind ourselves of like the wizardry and the magic of electromagnetic communication. So that's, I guess, a big idea. But then immediately when I start writing that next day, start trying to piece out ideas, all I'm thinking about is the girl and what's her situation. So you're down to like, what would she be wearing? And it's months really before I've decided to settle it in World War II. I've got books about the radios stacked up on my desk. Uh, and they say a whole year before I decide to set it in this town of Saint-Malo in France. So these, comes kind of come, these things come really slowly. But the whole time you're toggling back to like, what does electromagnetic communication mean now as I'm raising kids, as we're seeing... You know, at that time, we're seeing like the Arab Spring. And then, you know, you're seeing like people in Mongolia learn to repair their tractors or speak French using YouTube, which is a total miracle. But you're also seeing power, people in power using these new tools, also using invisible light to control information. And, you know, by the time that comes out in 2014, we're just beginning to start to see the negative effects. And then the pandemic hits and you see like the vaccine will give you eight arms and turn you into a cockroach. <laughs> And stuff, and you're like, that's what I was writing about, and that was going on in 1938 to uh, to begin to lay the groundwork to exterminate millions of human beings. You got all of that out of a guy losing <laughs> his call, <laughs> right? About Keanu Reeves, yeah. <laughs> yeah about Keanu. The whole world's super interesting. You just have to yeah. get out there, yeah. you know. There's. So that, but I, I hope that's like motivational for students who are getting started writing. Like, it, do, it doesn't, there's not some muse who's like tiptoes down from her angel garden and is like, here's your book, Steve. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, the book comes to you in these moments that you steal between like your kids' swimming lessons and the, the night that you're out there under the stars and you're like, look at this place. And then you're like, oh, I've got to fold the laundry. You're always moving between the sublime and the mundane. I could listen to this guy all night. I don't know about you. You, you draw these other parallels to science in storytelling where I, I, love, I love this parallel where you say, instead of writing what you know, you write to know. And that's what scientists do too, hmm, right? They do experiments cool. to know something. And that's what you're doing when you're writing. You, you don't know everything about electromagnetic waves. You know, you're, you're writing to find that stuff out, right? 
Absolutely, yeah. That cool link. I never made that link between that comment I made to one journalist once. Yeah, and then science, but that's it. Like, um, you know, the writing advice that you'll often get if you go to a, a workshop is write what you know. And I understand where that comes from. I think fundamentally that's good advice if it's about like write about falling in love or writing about having your heart broken, write about feeling lonely and isolated, write about feeling lost. Those are things we've all felt. Uh, some people, of course, more than others. Um, but w if it comes to, say, write about a violin maker in the 1600s who's falling in love, that doesn't mean because you haven't made a violin before, you can't write that. It means you might have to do a bunch of work. And like, like Dean's so good, I go talk to a couple of violin makers. It might be really cool. You might learn a lot. But that's where the in energy in writing comes from. If you already know something, you don't want to write about it because the reader won't feel that electric energy of discovering stuff along with you. Yeah. It, it, other things you've said about writing, this is from your Four Seasons in Rome book, where you say, to write a story is to inch backward and forward along a series of planks you are cantilevering out onto into the darkness, plank by plank, inch by inch, and the best you can hope is that each day you find yourself a little bit farther over the abyss. Okay. You, that's, you've just described the writing process, right? It, it, I mean, I assume that's how it is for you. It's how it is for me. Yeah, and but as I get older, you have to forgive yourself if you're a few inches back from the, the, when you started. If that's the Wednesday, you're like, oh, I'm five inches back towards the shore. That's okay. I used to really be hard on myself. Like, you do make progress, but... Sometimes it means you don't have great writing days or you claw away stuff that you spent weeks making and that's part of it, I think. We're so trained as Americans to love efficiency and I'm trying to learn to accept like efficient. Sometimes, you know, your failed projects you learn so much from. Sometimes just going to take a class in quilting or surfing, even if you don't become a professional quilter or surfer, that's okay. You know, but there was so much pressure on us as young people to be like, well, how is quilting going to inform your career as a cardiologist, Timmy? <laughs> but, you know, but I think the, the best cardiologists are obviously amateur quilters. <laughs> I don't know what exactly I'm saying there, but I think as you get older, try stuff and be willing yeah. to fail at stuff, including this thing that I might do as my profession, which is writing. Like I have to keep allowing myself to fail. Uh, otherwise, you don't really grow. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So, so you write this collection of short stories, Shell Collector. Everybody goes wild over it. And you follow it up with a novel about grace. Why not stick with what got you all the acclaim, which is short story? Why... why I mean, I think you sort of alluded to this just a second ago. Why try a novel when you know short stories are working? Oh, Dean, you got to get on the phone with more literary agents. Like, they're like, oh, these are great little stories. When is your novel coming out? <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's a whole debate in like academic circles, you know, it's a chicken or the egg because publishers don't expect short story collections to sell. Perhaps they don't promote them as much. But uh, the truth is, you know, in the days of uh, Edith Warren and Fitzgerald and Hemingway, when people were tired at the end of a workday, you would open the Saturday Evening Post and consume 7,000, 8,000 words of fiction. 
often. And now it's pretty easy to fire up your machines that give you law and order or whatever, some Netflix thing on tennis, and you're like, and you do that, and that's your story fix. Humans are still just as addicted to narrative as ever, but there are a lot more shiny ways to go get it and there's no judgment in going to some of those shiny ways i'll do it too and you get to share it sometimes with your partner or your kids and that's pretty cool that's another way that reading is a little more awkward although you should read aloud as much as you can um, so i think there's a little more interest in novels because that's a form of narrative that humans can't quite get anywhere else although long-form tv is starting to infringe in some ways and in interesting and really great ways uh, you know, but some some narrative that takes you nine to ten hours to consume, I think humans still really like to find that in printed, in written printed texts. One of the things I loved about the book about Grace was all of the interconnections with the characters and through the the natural world as well, which is one of the themes I think in so many of your books. But fundamentally, what you're telling us in that book is that we are connected to one another. And that even when we screw up, we sort of save each other. That's what I was getting out of that. And that's where the double sense of the word grace uh, comes in. I, I loved that book. Uh, the New York Times, however. <laughs> nice segue there, right? Uh, didn't think of it. The, as highly of it as maybe a collection of your short stories. Did that affect this you? one person at the New yeah, York one, Times? Yeah, one, one, yeah, 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 yeah. One, one reviewer. <laughs> uh, so, did that affect you? Of course, yeah. I mean, there's a few writers who I believe, like Marilyn Robinson, once said, "I don't read reviews, and they don't bother me," or something. She told me she's a very, in my opinion, extremely wonderful writer. And I believed her. But most writers, when they're like, I don't care about what anybody says about my work, you know, I'm like, right. I, it's, it's, if you work for months and months or years and years on something, it's human to be interested in what people think of it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, we had two babies at the time that review came out. We were living in Italy. My wife was doing most of the work, but I was in the trenches and... You're like, oh, I've got this book coming out. I have to go to these European countries to promote it. And then your, your publicist is like, oh, so the New York Times reviewed it today. And then you're like, well, what did they say? You know, so yeah, this stuff can sting. Do I remember the name of the writer who wrote it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went back and read the review. I, I, I read it and I felt like there was something else the reviewer is saying about that book. I thought he was also saying it was too well-written. Okay. Honestly, that, that was the sense I got from it, that, that the writing was so beautiful that it was distracting. Okay. Yeah. It's been a long time since I read it, but I kind of remember some of that. I think it was like, it's cold. The book is cold. I mean, the whole book's about snowflakes. So I was like, kind of a compliment. In the end, you can learn. You can't learn anything about and improve from a positive review. So you can learn something from those bad reviews if you can find a way to 
read them and not be too emotionally distraught because you don't want them to affect. By the time a book comes out, you're making something else. Usually yeah. you're maybe 12 months or 10, six months into a new project. And so your happiness is more dependent on creating things and not getting too attached to the uh, reactions to something you made before. So you, you mentioned being in uh, Rome. Uh, uh, you're working on your only nonfiction book, uh, Four Seasons in Rome, which in addition to telling about your year in Rome with newborn twins, it's about the history of civilization, the frustration of trying to write a book with two newborns in another country. So it's a book about writing a book, or more accurately, about all the things that kept you from writing a book. Yeah. And I wrote it as procrastination from writing All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah. It was a total work of procrastination. I actually loved Four Seasons in Rome for a variety of reasons. Um, The the John McPhee influence in me was just paying attention to the structure of that book. I thought it was a clinic in structure. Thanks. Main character heads off on an adventure, has all sorts of trouble, keeps seeing glimpses of hope and reasons to continue. All the while, this is giving you a chance to tell about Rome and nature and architecture and graffiti and loads of your personal fears and reflections. When I finished that book, I thought, this is how you write a book. Ah, thanks. I, I was just really, really moved, not only by the messages in there, but just by the way you did it. Now, I seem to recall, did that start out as kind of a series of letters? Uh, yeah, I had kept a notebook. I've kept a journal since I was 16. A high school English teacher had a start keeping journal, and it just stuck with me. It's always been a place I can work out stuff, language. You can just describe people in an airport. To have a place, once you become a published writer, where you can write unpublished writing is a really helpful thing. It's also kind of a way to just keep the muscle of translating the big pulsing magic of the world into language, to keep that just like whatever, doing your sit-ups. It's a way to kind of stay fit. Uh, so I had that, uh, but the Pope John Paul II died while we were there. First of all, let me just tell folks who maybe don't know, you know, I had that fellowship at Princeton when I took the train ride, and my wife was pregnant with twins, and we got a letter uh, saying, you've been uh, nominated for this thing called the Rome Prize. I didn't really know what about it. It was like, do you want to stay on? We're like, okay. We didn't know what it was. And then the day Shauna gave birth to these boys, (laughs) she has a C-section. I go home to get her bag and some stuff from the uh, apartment that we were renting in Princeton. I grabbed the mail and it's like, congratulations, you have won a year, you've won the Rome Prize, which is a year in Rome that you don't apply for. You live in the American Academy in Rome, which is on the Janiculum Hill. Uh, it's an incredible thing. It's been around since the 20s to mostly to help American architecture students learn architecture. But there's one writer every year and now there's three. And they're like, do you want to go? You know, let us know. So I go pedal my bike through the snow back to the hospital. My wife's on morphine. We have two babies we've never met. And I'm like, hey, do you want to see what came in the mail? <laughs> Guess what I got? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thankfully to her amazing credit, she's like, sure? Question mark? Uh, So, yeah, we did that. So that was the experience. I didn't know, you know, we live in Idaho, first of all. I'd never lived in a city this big. There's, like, car alarms and motorinos, and the babies are crying. And, like, there's pictures of horses on the baby food. And you're like, 
Is that horse? <laughs> Rabbits? We're like, here you go, Owen. Uh, so it was an amazing adventure into fatherhood. And, uh, but yeah, to, anyway, I can't remember your question, Dean. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but you were, you were riding all the light. Uh, at, That's what that was given the prize to do is work on a novel. But the right. city, the journal pages started to overwhelm uh, my fiction writing because the city was just so interesting. You know, I'm used to Boise where everything's familiar and being in an unfamiliar environment generally makes your the work of your senses so much more engaged, you know, when you go to a new place, especially when you don't know the language super well. So uh, suddenly, you know, I'd spend three hours writing about the piazza i had just been in that would be regularly flooded to to pose mock naval battles to entertain the populace you know you're like that's more interesting than the book i'm writing and then oh right and then the pope died i had published a few letters at this site called the morning news and they had gotten just tons of attention you know the city is about three million seven million people came into the city you know there's like you go to the corner bar to get your special you're like there's katie couric there's matt lauer or whatever he was still existing yeah, then yeah when it was okay to, to be matt lauer right right uh so you know i think those letters and then i think uh, not my editor but some other editor was like have you ever thought about turning these into a book and i was like well that would be less than 500 pages and i already have some of it in my notebook so there's a brain that's like maybe i could finish this i'm like this world war ii thing that's not getting finished Maybe one of the reasons why it took you 10 years to do all the light we cannot see. Right? Maybe, yeah. But, okay, so now that's a, like a three or four part Netflix thing. Oh, all the light? Yeah, Netflix yeah. is making it. It's pretty cool. I got to go to Budapest with my son, which was the greatest part. Thank you, Netflix, for including my son. And, uh, yeah, we got to go see um, them making this thing. It's crazy. It's the most astonishing thing to think that something you make in your basement gives people jobs. It's astonishing. You're just like, there's like security dudes and cable dudes and bakery dudes and mask wearing dudes who check your masks. And you're like, you guys have the job because I made these people up. It's just, yeah. So I would go home and cry and I'd go back to the hotel and cry. It was just really overwhelming. When are we going to see it? Uh, it'll come out this year is all I'm allowed to say. 2023. Okay. Mark Ruffalo, Hugh Laurie. Yeah, there's famous people in it. Yeah. But what's even more exciting is that we got a blind protagonist. So the protagonist, there's two protagonists in the novel. One is blind. And we have, so Marie, the character in the book, she'll be played by an older uh, Aria. She's about 20, but she'll play a teenager. And then Nell, she's seven. She plays the young version. And Nell's completely blind, just getting to see her work. And it was amazing. Her, her father's also blind. Her family's there. She'd go out on the set. And, you know, and they have a blindness consultant because it's hard for them to find their marks and where to put her hands. And she kept touching her face. And, you know, it was just a... It was really special to get to see her work. And hopefully then uh, other uh, actors with visual disabilities will have more opportunities because of these two amazing young women. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's go back to story for a minute. In Cloud Cuckoo Land, one of the aspects of that book is that the importance of preserving a story. You're 
you're really set on preserving story and preserving memory. Erasure of memory is a, a theme in many of your uh, many of your works, and I know this has maybe has its genesis in your grandmother living with you. Uh, what are those connected? Yeah, I think probably they are. Good, good backgrounding theme. Um, yeah, I mean that's something like probably f- to unpack with a therapist, but. Uh, <laughs> But I don't mind. Here, like, yeah, it's here fun. we are. Yeah. We're... Uh, when I was 16 or 15 or 16, my grandma came to live with us. I was, of course, self-centered and not thinking about what my mom was going through. She, my grandma had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but I had never even heard the word before. Of course, in that, those days, it wasn't like a word everybody knew. Uh, I graduated in co- uh, high school in 91, so probably it's like 88. And uh, my brothers were already off in college. So it was just me in the house, and I watched this disease like dismantle her cognitive capacities in this really visceral way. Um, you know, she could still beat me at gin rummy, but didn't know my name, or she would remember lyrics to Christmas carols, but she totally forget where she was. Um, and you know, so emotional for my mom, but of course I was too self-centered to really understand my dad you know would come home from work and deal with this she had sundowners so she would get upset in the evenings and i think it infected me with the sense of how fragile memory is everything that is yourself depends on you remembering your past and when those holes start getting chewed in that yourself starts to disintegrate and i think there's a lot of anxiety in me about that Hmm. um and I think it's astonishing that culture survives the ravages of time. But however, erasure is also important. Um, the way a battlefield, you know, if you go to Gettysburg or if you go to some of the World War I battlefields to see the way the land has healed is so important. Otherwise, the human race couldn't go on. Um, so this, this tension between erasure and memory has always been in present, I think, in all my work. And then Cloud Cuckoo Land was probably my most explicit way. It's about a manuscript that survives over centuries, probably my most explicit way of preserving that. I think it's my middle-aged book because my kids, all the light, my kids were 0 to 10 when I worked on it, and the kids were 10 to 17 when I worked on Cloud Cuckoo Land. And I realized like the most important thing about being a parent is the decentering it causes you. you. You get moved out of the center of your own needs and your own experiences and you start thinking about yourself as a link in a continuous chain of human culture. And um, I was linking this idea of environmental stewardship with book stewardship and cultural stewardship and the way libraries and librarians and teachers have preserved texts and stories over time is somehow linked to me with the same kind of stewardship that I think we need to be thinking about in terms of the quilt of species that we all share the earth with. You know, when I I read Cloud Cuckoo Land, I, I was partway through it and I'm just thinking, dude, I'm trusting you. I have no idea where this is going. I don't know if I'm in a Ken Kesey novel or I'm in some sort of time warp when I'm reading this, but but there was something about it that made me trust you. And if, then as you start pulling those threads together, then you know, then of course that's the that's the great payoff. Were you 
nervous at all that you were going to lose some people in, in, or that you were just going to confuse people? Oh, of course. Yeah, confusing is a little sadder of a word for me, a verb. All right, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, of course. Um, at, okay, the, during the seven years I wrote this book, science continually discovered linkages between unimaginably things that you just didn't think were connected. Um, probably the easiest example that maybe many of you know from, say, the work of Richard Powers, uh, a lot of the work that's been done on forests in the past 10 years has kind of upended the metaphor of forests that we grew up with, a very capitalist metaphor that, like, trees compete with one another for light and nutrients, right? That was like, and like, the best, the McDonald's of trees get the biggest, and that's wrong. It turns out that it's all forest, one tree. <laughs> yeah, it's all to- the forests are totally cooperative, and yeah. often will divert nutrients to its weakest members. They will send messages and alerts through the mycelium, mycelium, uh, fungus underneath the ground, and that they can often function function as a kind of super organism. It really inverts this metaphor. Uh, another one is say. Um, you know, of course, climate and fires affects all of you guys in California. If you think about, say, the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic, it's a stream of water up the, the coast of the Atlantic. It's 100 times more powerful than the Amazon River. It's slowing down rather suddenly, really suddenly, frighteningly suddenly. And, we th- you know, it keeps temperatures stable in places as distant as London and Miami and Tampa Bay. And what we're learning, we think, the reason it's, it, it's slowing down is that these huge amounts of fresh water are pouring off the Greenland ice sheet and they're drive, they're disrupting ocean density, the density of ocean water, and they're disrupting these big conveyor belts that are moving through the ocean. And it's all connected to warming up the air. So it's like somehow running our air conditioners and running our aircraft carriers, I guess those are nuclear, but running these big industrial systems, which is warming up the, the air, is connecting to the, to the movement of water in the Atlantic, which is changing temperatures in places as disparate as London and Tampa Bay. Things that you don't necessarily think of as connected, we're learning, are deeply connected. The, the microbiome is another one I can be really excited about that. Like this stuff, you know, we have, there's about 30 I think it's, there's doctors in here. I heard you thank some doctors. So they're going to correct me. There's something like 30 trillion human cells in our bodies. But when you got out of bed this morning, about 37 trillion microbial cells got out of bed with you. There's more microbial cells in you than human cells. And they, they operate in this dark simmering river inside of you. And they help like, you know, not only digest food, but maybe control your mental health. They help control how you smell. All these things are deeply interconnected and we're still used to using this idea of like, here's human, let's go out into nature for the weekend. Okay, back to my office in the human world. But you're always moving these wildernesses around within you. And I I think I wanted to somehow suggest at the beginning of Cloud Cuckoo Land that these things that you think are totally disconnected, if you trust me, I'm going to try to show you these little filaments that connect all of us through time so that you know, as there are going to be more fires, say, in the United States, more floods, the awful floods in Pakistan last year, as more and more of these environmental threats disrupt human life, there's this danger that our empathy will wane, we'll get empathy fatigue, and we'll forget that we are connected. You have to use your imagination, really expand and uh, work out your imagination like a muscle so that you can remember that you're not alone. That's the 
also, ironically, the answer to your own personal happiness. Because if you get too self-absorbed, you get unhappy. So if you can remind yourself of those connections to people in places that you don't readily think of that you're connected to, if a book like this can remind you, oh, if I just trust them, maybe I'm going to remember I'm connected to my ancestors and the kids in my future that I'll never get to meet, maybe that'll help you think through some of those stewardship ideas in your daily life. My gosh. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> so, okay. so part of the way you did Cloud Cuckoo Land, actually you structure it similarly to your other books as well, which are these really, really short chapters. And I... Uh, you and I have talked about this before, but I love uh, an image that you uh, have used in explaining why you use such short chapters. See if you still feel this way. That is, it's like you're launching a projectile, and then while it's still in the air, then you change chapters, and the reader is having to keep on an unconscious level, perhaps, that projectile in the air knowing that it's moving somewhere until you come back to it a few chapters later. Is that still how you feel about it? Yeah, if I do a good job or if a writer does a good job, sometimes you can fail and they'll kind of forget and the, the spinning plate will fall off the stick. Uh, suspend is Latin. Pend is inside. The word pending is inside that. Pendere to hang. And it's this metaphor of if you leave something hanging at this moment of its like highest trajectory, a reader will kind of be dying to see that thing come down. And so a reader might, she might keep turning a few more pages just to see that thing come down. So it's kind of like a trick. You can get her to turn a few more pages. I mean, that's the, been the trick of narrative yeah. forever. Yeah. But the, the bards in ancient Greece would walk around town and sing the Odyssey for wine and bread they would leave cliffhangers. They'd be like, well, if you guys feed me tomorrow, you'll hear what happened to Achilles. You know, you leave him hanging up there so that you can eat. <laughs> you know, also, there, there's such a morality in your characters. They, they all have these moral quandaries, and yet there's this kind of fundamental drive to do... I hate the cliche. I know it makes me sound lazy, but uh, to do the right thing. They're, they're, they struggle with what they want to do and what they end up doing, and then they usually do the right thing. And I'm just wondering, where is, is that part of your own kind of sense of, of humanity that we all have this fundamental uh, morality to us that we're, we're going to do the right thing? Hmm. Um, well, I I would answer that differently depending on like what news articles I've read most recently. Mm -hmm. No, that's fair. Um, but I I feel uh, I like God. There was some amazing stuff in the Times about Putin's culture of disinformation this weekend in the New York Times. At the same time, Putin has accidentally pushed like this green revolution through Europe 
so much more quickly. You know, we used to think there's going to be a surcharge. It's going to be really painful for us to leave fossil fuels. And we were all going to have to sacrifice a ton. And already, just in the past year, it's now cheaper for offshore energy, offshore wind in Britain than it is to buy natural gas to heat your stuff. Like, he's accidentally kind of made everybody change really, really quickly. So I do feel kind of hopeful about that. And I do think people are... Um, doing the the right thing because it just makes sense in about 18,000 different ways right now. Uh, we still have enormous growth to go, but in Cloud Kugelan, I kind of explored this end of history illusion where people always seem to think they're living at the end of history. And, uh, you know, I think about like my parents crawling under the desks, getting, you know, trained for atomic warfare. Uh, you know, they're growing up with this idea that like civilization could end any minute. And uh, when you start reading about some of the book is set in the 15th century, these people in Constantinople in 1453, as the, you know, this enormous Islamic army is coming to take the city, the city walls had stood for 1,000 years at this point. They genuinely believed this was it. The world was ending, like history, the, the final period was being put on history and that, you know, the second coming was there. That's what all these Christians believed inside the city. And of course, history has just kept going. So I kind of tend to find hope in that. Each time you read more about any historical period, you're like, okay, we've kind of been through this before. You can feel kind of despairing about that, but um, you can also feel kind of hopeful, like people keep finding ways. So. All right. That's, that's as hopeful as, as you're going to get, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so let's, let's talk about writing again. Where, where I've, I love this line from Four Seasons in Rome where you say, one minute I think this here, this is a good sentence. The next, I'm on the brink of throwing the whole thing away. But I'm used to this by now. It, that's the writer's life, right? <laughs> it's a, yeah, the neurotic writer's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife helps me through that all the time because there's moments where you're really like, this is not working. This is not solvable. And, uh, but yeah, experience helps remind you if you get a good night's sleep, lots of problems can be fixed. <laughs> That's good. The uh, I I love you, you ascribe to the Murakami quote about uh, about running about the importance of just getting going and setting once you set the pace he says about running then the rest will follow and here's his quote the problem is getting the flywheel to spin at a set speed and to get that to that point takes as much concentration and effort as you can imagine do you still That's have trouble. Good. That's getting really to good. that i don't but i have trouble with interruptions sometimes there are interruptions i invite upon myself like saying yes to invitations you know um, oh really we're interrupting big time really uh believe me direct flight from boise huge <laughs> huge like that where we live usually the east coast is a whole day so uh yeah i, I do tend to think about some of those things the Life interrupts you, as every person here knows. Parents get older. Kids need stuff. Um, the COVID pandemic hits. You get the flu. You get the norovirus. You break your ankle. Like, things happen. And so sometimes keeping that flywheel turning on any creative project, whatever you guys are interested, that's actually how you build, incrementally how you build 
big things is by just picking the berries one berry at a time you fill the huge bucket and yeah if you stop picking berries for a few days the, the sometimes the berries get a little rotten my metaphors got all messed no, up no that's not bad that's that, that that's that's not bad flywheels and berries no, I, I, I think it was the uh, violinist Yasha Heifetz who said, if I, if I don't practice one day, I know it. If I don't practice two days, the critics know it. If I don't practice three days, the whole world knows it. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like Huck, the huckleberries, right? Yeah, except I never think like the whole world's paying attention to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think they are. You know, you, you mentioned libraries... In an age of artificial intelligence and Amazon and uh, the internet, do we even need libraries anymore? Whoa. (laughs) Dean, come on. Um, Okay, where we live and it gets cold out, the library is the last place you can use the restroom without buying a $7 latte. So let's just start there. So we start, we start, we start with the biological function. And it's warm. You can sit there and read Time Magazine in there and stay warm if you don't have anywhere else to go. If you're a older person who's Kids are like, hey, can you take the grandkids today? And you're like, oh, okay, what do they like? Go to the library. Fixed. It's the best place for that. If you're a young person and you want to meet your friends and you don't know a place that anybody will approve of, you go to the library. So it is a functioning, public, open, free community space for everybody. Forget about the stuff that's in there. Then if you want to interact with our government or apply for a job, Still, huge portions of the United States don't have regular access to the Internet. So you need to be able to access the Internet. It is an incredibly equalizing tool to be able to go use a free computer. For those of us who have computers in our pockets might take that for granted. But that's not the case. As the pandemic showed in my kids' high school in Boise, one-third of the kids didn't have regular access to the Internet at home. Libraries, enormous tool for that. Then let's talk about the preservation of human wisdom and access to information, let alone, I know you use librarians, like go in and ask them stuff. They help you in so many different ways. So to have you know access to be able to go study the work of the masters for free, to learn how to take that home and care for public property is one of the last ways that we all share the common green that you get to bring home a, the phantom toll booth and spill chocolate milk on it and apologize and deal with fees and late fees that you're participating in our community and in culture and yeah, libraries are so unbelievably essential, and those attacks are so off. Like, you know, there's all these challenges right now. Like, they're trying to criminalize certain uh, acts if librarians hand out obscene. Who's deciding what's obscene? It's like one book from 1990 with one page on masturbation or something. And they're like trying to make it a misdemeanor for librarians to hand these books out. So, anytime you see a librarian, she'd be like, Thank you so much. Here's some money. Here's a latte. <laughs> when i was in boise with you a year ago i i went into the boise library and what i love about that is it says library on the building with an exclamation point after the y it it's they know they know 
But I, I mentioned artificial intelligence. Are, are you worried as a creative person about artificial intelligence? Maybe are we no longer going to need great writers? I mean, we're just going to get, just go into chat, GPT, and they'll have us print something out? Uh, no, I'm worried for high school teachers right now, for sure. I hope they're getting tools. I think it's an extremely challenging moment. This technology arrived publicly in November for the first time to be free. And I think I would guess this is, I'm going to get in tons of trouble, but maybe 20% of papers that high school teachers are getting handed right now probably are somehow helped by chat GPT. So I would worry that teachers aren't getting time to learn about these new tools, teach kids about these tools. And of course, the sophistication will keep going up, but you know, maybe there'll be tools that help creative people. Um, uh, you know, as long as students are learning how to write on their own cold turkey, teachers will quickly find ways around that, you know, work on pen and paper, do in-class writing. Um, hopefully maybe these, some of these tools can help illustrators. They can help small businesses. I think, um, maybe, you know, I don't know enough about it, but the idea that like legal writing could be simplified. Some people maybe who don't have means could get their wills done more easily with artificial intelligence. That's appealing to me. Uh, but of course I, and maybe also helping say a cancer doctor crunch enormous amounts of data, you know, incomprehensible quantities of data, uh, you know, involving genes that could be very interesting. Um, so yeah, I just think we got to keep talking. It's just like the tools of the internet and disinformation. We need to keep talking about how was radio used by Goebbels and Hitler in the 1940s. You know, they made these really inexpensive radio sets and they made them cool. So young people wanted to buy them. They cut the price in half. You had to subscribe to a radio service in Germany in the 1930s and they made those free so that suddenly now, you know, I think Goebbels' goal was by 1938, a million families in Germany would have radios in their houses. And that's how they started to control what kind of information was going into these people. You know, these all suddenly they make them mistrust their neighbors through storytelling. And I think, you know, we need to be having those conversations all the time about, you know, what are your kids doing in their bedrooms? And remember, these, these tools that we're all using are built by corporations whose goal is to maximize profit for their shareholders, not to educate us or teach us stuff or move us. They're just, Instagram might be kind of compelling, but Instagram's goal is to sell ads to, well, sell, you know, have somebody pay them to put ads in front of you and, that's not necessarily like the best goal, in my opinion. So you need to be talking about those things all the time. Just in case you were worried whether ChatGPT would replace you as a writer, okay. my colleague here at Point Loma and I, Holland Pryor, she and I typed in okay. and asked it to write a paragraph as if it, about climate change, as if it were authored by you. Okay. <laughs> Here's the opening it. sentence. Climate change is a looming threat that has the potential to alter the face of our planet as we know it. I'm telling you, it doesn't sound like Boring. You. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think you're okay. I okay. think you're okay. That's it? That's yeah. Well, the rest of the paragraph is, yeah, <laughs> okay. just, just more of the same boring stuff. Yeah. So. You're, It'd be better if, like, Randy was walking to the coffee shop one day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, boy. So, you, you, I, I want to talk about writing some more. Where, where, where you 
I don't know. I know you, you have some Catholic upbringing, but that's, I don't know that that's what's informing you now necessarily, but you're just tapped into some kind of spiritual or transcendent stuff when you write. And um, I, just the way you embrace mystery and wonder, uh, you've got this line where you say, writing is better understood as a kind of prayer, an inquiry, something best done over time, repetitively, day after day. There's, I don't know, I, I read your stuff, and I, I just feel spiritually uplifted when I read your work, and I'm just wondering, is that just a byproduct, or is that an intentional, or, do you know you're tapping into some kind of transcendence or mystery? Yeah, no, I'm like eating a donut, just like barely trying to like get a sentence out. I'm, what what I. That's not to say donuts, you know. There it is. Can't have. The path to the universal is through Uh, the donut. There could be a Eucharistic (laughs) quality. You never know. Yeah. There are days when literally I'm like, just make it to 10 a.m. And then you can walk and get a donut. That's kind of my goal sugar i'm sugar motivated uh that that's kind i do think that i feel very acutely maybe because of grandma maybe because of losing a couple friends when i was young like uh, maybe i overestimate the threat of mortality but i'm just like man you barely get to get me here the earth is four and a half billion years old like humans have really only been like harvesting and collecting crops for like 12,000 years maybe like writing has barely been around I get to participate in this thing my mom was uh, when she taught us timelines in the Montessori school she did the toilet paper thing where you roll the toilet paper down the hallway has anybody ever heard this and you estimate the age of the earth along the toilet paper and you know single cell creatures don't show up till you're halfway down the hallway and the dinosaurs don't show up until the last square of toilet paper and then human history is like the micron on the very last edge and that's all of it that's the you know the caesars and the chinese dynasties and your grandmother's cookie recipe and the first time you made out in a vehicle all that stuff is in the t- last micron of fabric at the end of this whole hallway and that stuff sinks in when you're eight you're like it's so it makes you feel small but it makes you feel huge at the same time you're like i get to be here like i get to look up into this infinite cosmos now we have the james webb telescope that's like teaching us about the very first moments of creation and then you're like well what was before the big bang like get into that james webb like i want to know that stuff before i'm gone and now we're learning about exoplanets. We're like discovering a new exoplanet every day. Like not only does our sun have planets going around it, but maybe all the stars up there have these big rocky and gaseous things spinning around them. And that, you know, how unique are we? Like we get to be here and know that and experience all that stuff. So maybe I'm trying to remember that as I eat the donut. And maybe I can channel some of that. But it's just this breathtaking fortune of that one sperm finding its way way to that one. Like your dad had like zillions of sperm, and the one found that egg, and it's. And then you start getting into atoms. You're like, you know, you might have thirty trillion cells in you, but the amount of atoms in you is just mind blowing. 
So if you start thinking through like the miracle of getting to be here to do any of that stuff, sometimes that does lift you above like the traffic jam on I-5. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I hate to do this, but we're going to start wrapping this thing up. Uh, you got any advice for aspiring writers? Uh, yeah, read and read widely. Uh, it's okay if the first time they give you Virginia Woolf or uh, whatever they're giving you now, they, you know, if they give you Sandra Cisneros and you're like, I don't get this, try again five years later. Keep trying those things. There's a reason people are still reading the Brontes and Melville. Give that stuff a chance before you die. And I think just because you want to be, say, a jazz pianist doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to Simon and Garfunkel like Darren was playing. You know, re- listen widely, read widely. You can learn as much from talking to somebody or just staying open, just being open to like, ah, sure, I'll read this article Grandma sent me, even though it seems boring. Uh, you know, try, just stay open all the time. And I think that your curiosity should lead you. Do you have a writing group? I know Shauna, your wife, reads is one of your first readers. Do you have others who you trust? Uh, well, I have my editor. So that's who I. Um, at, the problem is, you get to a certain point where the, too many voices would frighten me. I think writing groups are phenomenal. So if we're still in the advice category, find people who support you because it's kind of a crazy thing to do. Like make word worlds with words in your bedroom. That seems weird. So have people who are doing that with you to support you. But in my case, I don't know if I've outgrown it, but I've got so many critics screaming in my own head as I wake up and read through my own work that by the time my wife gets through it and then my agent, by the time it gets to my editor, I don't think I want too many other voices telling me things. I'm too afraid. You know, I I think I want to end this this way. Uh, You wrote an essay um, about seeing a cabin. and it's titled, Thing with Feathers That Perches in the Soul. Um, it was in Granta and then Best American uh, Essays. And I'm wondering if, you could, if we could close with you reading the final four, a few paragraphs of that. Yeah, you asked me beforehand, so I knew this was coming. <laughs> I, I wanted the mystique of just springing this on you, so thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, it's quite short. So you guys are almost done. Um, and yeah, this, uh, on the, for about four years, something like that, our kids went to a school that, uh, on the route to drive to the school, my wife did it most of the time, but when I would go drop them off or pick them up, I'd pass this little cabin made of cottonwood. Those of you who know Western trees know this is not a good wood to build things from. Really soft, like building something out of balsa wood almost. And it was built in 1863. It was the first uh, Western style building built in the Treasure Valley in Boise and Idaho where we live. And it was built by a man named John O'Farrell. I didn't know any of this at the time. I just drove past it and never even noticed it. And one day it was really smoky. We've been getting a lot of smoke from California. <laughs> and, just kidding. No, it's been a terrible fire seasons in Idaho as well, but uh, the smoke tends to pool in the valley. So in the way it never used to be in August and September, we're getting like these really smoky days. I'm sure many of you, at least a little more inland, can relate. 
and I just noticed this cabinet. I'm like, what is the story there? He, uh, the, he built it for his wife, who was half his age. She was 17, Mary, and she was coming uh, on the coach, I think from Louisiana or something, to meet him. I learned all this, and, uh, and they were married for 37 years. They raised seven kids, and it was 12 by 14. Tiny. And at the end, I went to the archives and asked if I could see anything that they had saved from the O'Farrell cabinet. And they had four items they brought out for me, a miner's candlestick. They used to have masses in this little house. Uh, so they had a like a Catholic altar stick. I don't know what you call that beautiful little altar stick. And a lantern and some, some other thing. That was it. So they lay them out on fabric in front of me, this archival fabric. And this is the end of that little essay. All four objects sit mute in front of me, points of light dredged out of the shadows, incapable of testimony. What lasts? Is there anything you've made in your life that will still be here 150 years from now? Is there anything on your shelves that will be tagged and numbered and kept in a warehouse like this? What does not last, if they are not retold, are the stories Stories need to be resurrected, revivified, reimagined. Otherwise, they get bundled with us into our graves. A hundred thousand of them going into the ground every hour. Or maybe they float a while, suspended in the places we used to be, waiting, hidden in plain sight, until a day when the sky breaks and the lights come on and the right person is passing by. Outside the warehouse, the air seems smokier than before. The sky glows an apocalyptic yellow. Beneath a locust tree at the edge of the parking lot, doves hop from foot to foot. My hands tremble on the steering wheel. I start the engine, but for a long minute, I cannot drive. It's not that the stuff is still here. It's not that the house still stands. It's that someone keeps the stuff on shelves is that someone keeps the house standing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.